0: Do 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 do
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim, and I will be your host for this evening. Ashley Park, who is usually uh, my co-host, will be in later in the show today. And we are, I am broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia on the Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam territory. Today's show is quite jam-packed with um, a variety of guests. We have composer-in-residence with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, Edward Topp, on the show to speak about the Sonic Boom Festival. We also have Leah Toulouse to speak on the ongoing exhibition of Ojemma, I Am Woman at the Windsor Gallery. And finally, uh, as I said, Ashley Park will actually be coming into the studio with... um, a number of guests to talk about the theatre festival happening in Granville Island, Um, and so we've got really a show full of guests, and as mentioned, our first guest is Edward Topp. He is the composer-in-residence for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, and he'll be talking about this Sonic Boom Festival. And this is the 29th year uh, that the Sonic Boon Festival is going on, and what this festival is really all about is contemporary classical music. Um, it is going to run from March the 17th, tomorrow actually, and it will run till the 20th at three different venues, the Orpheum Annex, the Western Front, and Piat, Piat Hall. So as I get a hold of Edward over the phone, I'm going to be playing a recording of his actually, um, that he composed and released in 2013 uh, for the Standing Wave Ensemble. It's called Pots and Pans Falling, and we will be right right back after this. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I am Christine Kim. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. Welcome back, Arts Report listeners. Um, As promised, I have Edward Topp, composer-in-residence for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, on the line, live here to talk about the Sonic Boom Festival. Thank you for being on our show, Edward.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: How are you doing this afternoon?
2: I'm pretty good. I'm uh, looking out the window and I see the sun shining. I was doing some uh, admin stuff, but uh, yeah, hope I can enjoy it uh, when it's back tomorrow.
1: Mhm, it's fantastic weather and yeah. tomorrow is the start of the Sonic Boom Festival. Hopefully the good weather continues for you guys. How excited are you yeah. to um for the kickoff tomorrow?
2: Yeah, it's going to be great. It's uh tomorrow is going to be uh the first evening as you said and uh, it'll be uh mixed ensembles and if you look at the schedule and all the performers involved it is a uh, it's a it's a very uh, diverse uh, amount of uh, instruments and combinations of instruments that you're going to hear on that first evening. yeah.
1: And what was your experience like composing for this festival? Have you ever composed for such a festival?
2: Um, Yeah, well, you know, this is interesting because uh, Sonic Boom is a festival for uh, BC composers. So there's uh, four evenings, uh, four events uh, for chamber music, really. And uh, I've had the, the the luck of of being able to write for orchestra quite a bit in the past, so that is of course fantastic. Uh, that's kind of like what most composers uh, want, but this is a completely different kind of scale and uh, with different challenges and different, uh, completely different uh, atmosphere too during the live performances and and interaction with the musicians during the rehearsal processes. So yeah, it's a uh, it's very uh, it's very interesting.
1: Hmm. And other than composing um, for the festival, I also saw that you are going to be holding a master class. Can you go over what a master class is, but also how such a class is a valuable opportunity for student composers, especially?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Sunday morning is going to be uh, that master class, and a master class usually involves uh, a master, so like uh, a, a teacher or a, 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 a more experienced uh, musician or, or composer or conductor or, or a performer, um, uh, kind of like uh, uh, with an audience present um, where students perform or have their works performed uh, and then uh, get some feedback uh, from, from the, the teacher or from the, from the uh, person who's, who's doing the masterclass and that's going to happen on monday uh sorry uh, sunday morning and um uh, we have i think four or five student works uh, i know of some of them are um pretty uh, you know like young and and new to the craft of composing so for them it will be an interesting experience it's always uh, very exciting for, as I remember myself too, because I was once young too, uh, when uh, you have the experience of hearing your music first uh, performed or rehearsed by musicians, by live musicians. It comes to life. Uh, you're interacting with these personalities, and uh, they give you feedback. They, they ask you questions, uh, like, uh, for example, things that you wouldn't have thought of when you're sitting at your desk composing. Um, especially for, for inexperienced younger people, that is, of course, very exciting because they might think like, oh, I never thought that was possible on the instrument. You know, mm-hmm. a string player might ask you, uh, do you want this to pl- be played with a bow or maybe pizzicato or with a jumpy bow or with a more, you know, uh, slurred bow? And there's all these different ways of, of interpreting your music that uh, that will be a very, uh, yeah, revealing experience to, to, uh, to most. I mean... Uh, uh, even though I had, I had many performances and, and rehearsals before, uh, to have that experience still is is exciting. And working with a uh, with a soloist or, or an instrumentalist who still gives you ideas that you hadn't thought of before is uh, is, is still very exciting. So I, I guess I'm still learning myself too.
1: Right, and I'm curious: how often is it that, as a composer, you rely upon the musician's um, ability to? perform and the musician's ability to read your music and kind of put in their own input on on what they think of the piece.
2: You know, that that's great. That's a great uh stage in realizing your artwork. You know, a painter or 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 a visual artist has the result, the final result right in front of them as they work on it. They see it appear uh whereas a composer it's, you know, well, nowadays we have computers that can more or less play back some uh, you know, very uh, simple interpretations of instruments. Of course, never the real thing. But uh, so you have a little bit of a grasp of how the composition spans in time, how the proportions of the work are. Uh, but the real thing is really the the final stage is really the in, the interpretation the performers give to your ideas. And this, of course, is uh, is, is, is is very valuable. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it can be. Uh, i guess uh I, I mean i wouldn't say that you did you get in, in disputes or something with the musicians but of course there are sometimes moments where you're like oh no but i really want it like this in other words you're put to the test uh in how certain you are of your ideas and how you want to hear it uh that you have to convince uh and and you know the, the musicians to interpret it in that way and um and uh, sometimes maybe your score is not clear enough, So they would have questions about things that you know you thought was were clear. In your mind, they might have, but to them, there might be three other ways of interpreting it. So.
1: right. And when you were composing for the Sonic Boom Festival, its twenty ninth run, what inspired you? What different things um, caught your attention and shaped kind of the musical composition that you created?
2: you know the sonic boom festival is uh, is uh, as i mentioned before is very diverse uh bc composers can send in works and uh sometimes uh, maybe they have performers themselves in mind who can step forward and, and perform as as is the case in the first two evenings tomorrow night and friday night uh thursday night uh, is an ensemble that was kind of like a set ensemble before people were before they made the announcement of the sonic boom festival so that people could actually compose specifically for the this ensemble on Saturday night and Sunday night the same thing Saturday night it will be uh, David Brown playing contrabass double bass contrabass and Jeremy Bergman playing trombone and they are uh, they play duos uh and that's um one ensemble that I've written a short piece for and the, the other one is on Sunday night when the Ensemble Standing Wave, which is a wonderful sextet from Vancouver, uh, half of the mem- whose members also play in the Vancouver Symphony. And uh, they have a soloist, this Ensemble Standing Wave, for this particular event, probably I think only for my piece, actually, uh, which is a bass clarinet. And this is performed by Chris Inguanti, who until last year was the bass clarinetist in the Vancouver Symphony. And you're asking me, how did it come about writing uh, for the festival? Well, Mm. it was mainly these ensembles that dictated the the piece. Um, First of all, I I already had plans. I was already asked by Chris a while ago to write a piece for him. And we're both friends with the members of the ensemble. So that's how that came about. And uh, this ensemble, Standing Wave, also happened to be the ensemble in residence this year for Sonic Boom. So all these things kind of came together.
1: Right, and you've Uh, worked with Standing Wave before.
2: I have, that's right. I I, I gather that you've just played uh, Pots and Pans, which I wrote for them uh, three years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, yeah, so so the Saturday night concert for trombone and contrabass is uh, uh, these two guys did a workshop a couple of months ago to kind of like, you know, promote their instruments, as it were and to have composers write for this unusual combination. And uh, uh, David, the bass player, also showed his bass guitar, his six-stringed bass, with all kinds of um, uh, pedals and, and effects that he has, electro- so electric bass. And uh, composers were also able to compose for that. So there's ha- there has been a group of composers who sent in works for that particular, uh, for those particular instruments, and I decided also to write a piece for them.
1: And you said that the soloist was a bass um a bass clarinet. clarinet. Yeah. Uh, initially it just sounds very difficult to <laughs> write a to have an entire solo for a, a yeah. bass instrument just cuz yeah. I'm so used to hearing like a a violinist being a solo yeah. or like piano. Um Absolutely. tell me what it was like uh trying to uh Put a, yeah. a, an instrument that's usually um, creating the undertones instead Absolutely. of like the major yeah. melody. <laughs> Tell me Absolutely. about that.
2: Yeah, no, that is definitely a challenge. You got that <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, a <laughs> it's uh, it's, uh, it's an instrument that, as you said, you usually associate with a uh, maybe an accompaniment mm-hmm. or a deeper sound or yeah or some special effects. Or but uh, but to have an, an extended solo for that instrument is, of course, a whole different thing. And well, I have to say, a bass clarinet since the last 30, 40 years has been really explored as a solo instrument because it not only has that bass extent, like that extension of its of the range of the clarinet in the lower end, but it can still also play a lot of higher things too. So it is a very versatile instrument. And uh, yeah, the way I've I've said it for the ensemble is that it's uh, a yeah. the because the ensemble itself also has a clarinet who also doubles on bass clarinet that's what we call it in music like a a player can double on uh, another instrument so like a wind player often play like for example a flute player often is able to play the piccolo as well which you know the fingering and everything is, is is the same it's just the sound that is that is much higher and the same with the clarinet and the bass clarinet it's the same kind of player who could actually switch within a piece between the instruments And uh, the fingering and how everything feels is the same. It's just a bit uh, lower in the bass clarinet. Hmm. And uh, so there is this duel going on between the clarinet of the ensemble and the bass clarinet solo, uh, which uh, explains the title of my work, which is Duel. Duel.
1: Right, right. Well, thank you so much, um, Edward, for speaking with me today about uh, the Sonic Boom Festival and also kind of the new perks um, of what you guys will be performing um, over the next yeah. couple days. Um, just to end off, can you remind our listeners about how they can find out more and maybe just a little bit of a tidbit of why students especially um, should go out and check this festival out?
2: Yeah, um, it's um, um, it'll be uh, in th- in three uh, locations. Um, it'll be at the Orpheum Annex downtown Vancouver, uh, which is um, part of the. Um, it's just right next to the VSO School of Music, the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra School of Music. There's also that's the Sunday night concert. There's also two events in Pyatt Hall, which is in the same building but another smaller venue, very nice venue actually, and. Um, the Western Front, which is uh, another venue, not downtown. It's uh, Main and Eighth, ar- around there, like where Broadway and and uh, Kingsway meet, somewhere there. I think uh, that's uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night. And um, uh, yeah, a lot of pieces that are performed are by young composers. Um, some of them are students themselves. I have some students, some students of my own who will have works performed. And uh, Sunday morning is the workshop, the master class, um, with uh, four or five uh, student composer works being, um, being read and uh, studied by, uh, by a violin and a piano. So, uh, and, and those players, by the way, are Corey Hamm, piano, and Marcus Takazawa, violin. And that's Sunday morning.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Edward, for being on the show. And yeah, best of You're luck welcome. with the performances.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye. That was Edward Top, the composer in residence for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, and he was talking about the Sonic Boom Festival. It, it is tw- it. Is its 29th year. Um, it is the 29th year of the festival, and it is going to be running from March 17th tomorrow to the 20th. Now, if you like the Pots and Pans Falling composition by Edward that I played right before the interview, I'm actually going to be playing another one of his compositions called First World Problems, which was performed by New BC Collective um, with soprano Carla Karla So. Tune in for that, and we will be right back with the Arts Report's next guest. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I am your host, Christine Kim. Welcome back, Arts Report listeners. I cut that composition short, but if you would like to listen to more of Edward Topps' composition, do look him up. We are going to be having all of his um, social media kind of profiles on our Facebook page. Um, Our next guest, though, is Leah Toulouse, and she is here to talk about the art exhibition of Ogema, I Am Woman, running till March 29th, actually, at the Windsor Gallery in Vancouver. This exhibition, Ogema, I Am Woman, centers matriarchal modes of seeing and being. Um, It shares representations of First Nations as seen and created by female artists indigenous to North America. Thank you so much for being on our show, Leah.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Um, It's really a pleasure to be able to have um, a little bit more publicity for art exhibitions like this. And I guess my first question for you is just tell me about your experience curating for um, this particular topic.
3: Um, Okay, well, it definitely has been interesting. Um, It's my first uh, curated exhibition as part of the... um, Master's program in uh, Critical and Curatorial Studies at UBC. Um, So part of this program is we curate our own exhibition. Um, So I basically started approximately a year ago to do research into this topic. Um, And I was inspired to do an exhibition on this specific topic of uh, Indigenous matriarchy uh, through my great, I don't know how many greats, uh, grandmother on my mother's side, who is Anishinaabe from Ontario. Uh, and she was, uh, her name is Ogema which means chief woman. Uh, and she was the uh, wife of Chief Shingwok, who was a really great chief in the 19th century. And uh, she had a really important role in her community. And in the political sphere, she worked with her husband on an equal playing field. So I thought that was really inspiring. And that's kind of what drove... Uh, me to do an exhibition on this topic uh,
1: yeah so you do have um, like heritage um,
2: yeah
3: I do yeah I'm half um, Ojibwe or Anishinaabe it's the same it means the same uh, nation uh, my mom is from Serpent River Ontario and she's Ojibwe and then on my father's side we're, I'm from France so
1: <laughs> yeah. I see, I see. One of my questions just directly was going to be, what kind of connections do you have? Because automatically um, when I saw your picture or your uh, professional uh, picture oh, yeah. was that she's just Canadian <laughs> or she's just white. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, nope. <laughs> yeah, and and I was, you know, almost a little bit wary that um, somebody who might not have had any experience mm-hmm. with those colonial um those Subject, kind of roots, yeah, yeah um, would be curating something like this. But yeah. um, hearing that, I mean, can you describe to me some of the pieces, some of the significant pieces actually in this exhibition for us?
3: Yeah, well, how about I'll start with um, one of them by Janice Toulouse, which is my mother. Um, so I decided to have her in the show because the show is about a lineage, matriarchal lineage. So I thought, hey, why not have my own mother who is an Ojibwe uh, painter? And she uh, painted a series of chiefs and matriarchs, um, inspired or derived from historical photographs uh, from our family and other uh, families as well. So I asked her to uh, s- like contribute two paintings of uh, Ogemakwe and Chief Shingwauk. So she contributed those. Um, some other art. Well, the other artists in the exhibit are uh, Tamara Kubovius, Janine Frain Jutley. Uh, Olivia Weetong, Maria Hupfield, uh, and Wendy Redstar. Um, I could talk about Wendy Redstar's work. She's a crow from uh, Montana in the United States. And the work in the show is um, 24 uh, photographs that are derived from 24 books that were written in the 1950s, uh, titled White Squaw. And these 24 books are kind of like Harlequin romances about um, a play on the Indian white, sort of Indian white woman, uh, very sort of sexualized um, native woman for, the, for the, like the white male consumer. And so she've, she's kind of um, taken these uh, books and placed her own image um, at the center of the photograph with the original depictions from the book around the photograph. And it's sort of like humoristic. Um, she's kind of reclaiming uh, that image of what is uh, what is um, supposed to be kind of the Indian woman, the stereotypical Indian woman, often seen in like Hollywood productions uh, and whatnot. So she's kind of sort of reclaiming that image in her in her work. Uh, so those are really interesting. People really like those ones. Um, what are some of the other works? Um, Tamaris Kubovius's work is what is on the invite. Uh, and that those are uh, images of her nude body taken um, in Leslie Spit in Toronto, which is sort of like an industrial refuge uh, park. Uh, it used to be anyways, sort of a place for industrial refuge waste to sort of wash up on the shore and be dumped there. Um, and now it's sort of been reclaimed by the city as a park because sort of the flora and fauna and nature has sort of grown and sort of taken over this industrial refuge, and it's now a beautiful um, beach. Um, so it's sort of been reclaimed by nature, and so sort of it's a commentary about sort of the native woman being vulnerable and having a very difficult uh, history but also sort of reclaiming uh, herself today. So that's kind of a little bit about that work. It's a really beautiful piece. You got to see it, though. You know, it's hard to describe without seeing it.
1: (laughs) That's totally fair. But you did give a very good illustration for us of the (laughs) significant pieces in the exhibition. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually quite shocked to hear how many different um, artists um, that you've just named, and I'm wondering, I guess, is. is visual art a big part of um, the way the way that um, Indigenous, I guess, uh, female members of the community have expressed themselves historically?
3: Um, I think. Well, I think. Yeah, I believe so. Um, there's one example I could give of that is in this exhibition, Olivia Weetung. Um, she is actually uh, she does beading. She's doing her MFA here at UBC. Um, so she's, yeah, she's a candidate for her MFA here, and a lot of her work is based around beading, but she sort of, uh, creates it in a more kind of contemporary way, so not the way that it's traditionally been done necessarily, always, um, and for this exhibition she produced screen prints that are identical, there's like ten of them, and they are derived from a book called, uh, Crafts of the Ojibwa. Which, are, which consists of um, traditional beading patterns of the Ojibwe people. And it's interesting that it's, it's kind of like an anthropological book in a way, but that's what inspired her to do this work. So I guess historically a lot of Ojibwe women uh, would bead as an art form, but it's also, I think it kind of made a political statement as well, the way that they were beading and what they were beading and what they were contributing to their community. And I guess the work she's doing is kind of a commentary on um, sort of mass-produced beading kits as well. Um, they're, they're sort of sold as like learn how to bead kind of like an Indian or learn Indian yeah. beading designs. I know, it, it's, it is out there. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of also an inspiration for her work. Uh, so that's one, one art form that I know has sort of been passed down through generations. But I do think that Art is a very uh, effective and strong uh, way of communication for a lot of Native women um, mm-hmm. and expression.
1: Yeah. All right. And can you speak a little bit? Um, you've already spoken, I guess, of the political um, kind of lines, c- political kind of themes that are inherent through um, the kind of arts that's being dis- depicted, the controversial aspects of it. Um, how much of that is a healing process, not only for the viewers? But also for the people who's displaying that art in this exhibition at the in the Windsor Gallery.
3: Well, I feel like it gives them a platform. It gives them a voice to express whatever they choose to express and show visually. So I think visitors from all walks of life can walk in and have no idea what they're ex- what to expect and sort of see these really powerful images. That might be more effective than, I don't know, maybe reading a book or they might not have a chance otherwise to be confronted with what they're about to see. So I guess, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I feel like it's an, an effective tool and a, a platform for
1: yeah for, for expression.
3: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Leah, for being on the Arts Report today. Yeah, um, thanks for Just having to me. remind, as a final uh Question: Can you remind our viewers on where they on the details of the exhibition, and yeah. if somebody wants to go out um, to see it, um, how they can find out more?
3: Well, it's at the Windsor Gallery, which is on First and Industrial um, in Vancouver. It's just off Main, Main and First, uh, and the galleries open pretty much every day except for Sunday and Mondays. And the exhibit closes on March 29th in the afternoon. So there's about a week left. Um, so, yeah, check
1: it out. <laughs> yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Leah. Thanks for having me. And we are going to be uh, having several more guests coming on our show in just a bit, listeners, but um, we are going to be playing a couple PSAs, ad breaks. Uh, before we do, um, you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 F.
4: When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within
1: the first day.
5: Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, it's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 So come check us out on the floor of the Student Union Building. we got all types of crazy shit for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. Hempology 101 is a student-run organization here to educate the public about the benefits of hemp and cannabis. Fast fact! Hemp is a renewable, sustainable source of food and fiber. Fast fact! Your body contains anandamide, which is part of the same family of substances as THC. To learn more, look us up on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash hempology101ubc. Or come to one of our great events. And don't forget, legalization through education. Come and feel our positive energy at Valandafa Fellowship. Falandapa, also called Falun Gong, is an ancient spiritual discipline based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. It's a self-cultivation practice that improves mental and physical wellness through meditation and simple exercises. It's been well documented to improve mind and body, relieve stress and anxiety, increase energy and vitality, and promote morality and spiritual Why not give yourself a chance to learn free of charge? To learn more, please visit our website at valandaffafellowship.com.
2: Tune in every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on CITR 101.9 FM where we bring you the Community Living Show. A full hour is produced by the disabled community showcasing for B.C. self-advocates with lots of interesting and fun content, including some interviews from special guests with special needs. Join hosts Michael, Kelly, and friends every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. Because you've got a friend in community living and
6: CITR.
5: Hi there. Are you tired of listening to the same music day in and day out? And want to try something a little different? Well then, how about listening to Asian music? Now, I don't mean it like. Gangnam Style. Nor like.
0: She bangs, she bangs, oh baby, but she moves, she
5: moves. I'm talking about a little more like
0: and
5: a little more like and also a little more like And definitely something like. So tune in to Asian Wave 101, playing you the best of Chinese and Korean pop, Wednesdays from 4pm to 5pm, only on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver.
4: And thank you, and welcome back to CITR. You are listening to the Arts Report here at uh, 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm your host, Ashley Park, and we have a really wonderful arrangement of guests here today. I'm very excited to uh, welcome our UBC uh, talent, hashtag UBC talent. And this is in regards to the Brave New Playwrights Festival, which will be starting tomorrow, March 17th until the 20th. It'll be at Studio 13981398 in Granville Island and is at 7.30 uh, p.m. And it um, it is an annual festival of theater shorts by BFA and MFA students in the UBC Creative Writing Department. And uh, it is the 30th anniversary, and to celebrate that, we have wonderful guests today. We have uh, Professor Brian Wade. He's the graduate chair and professor at stage play and radio drama. He is a published and produced playwright, and um, some of his plays include Elias, A Breakthrough, This Side of the Rockies, and an adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's The Lady from the Sea, produced at UBC in 2004. He's worked with these companies, the Factory Theatre Lab in Toronto, the Tarragon Theatre, also located in Toronto, and the Quinzane International du Theatre Festival in Quebec, the Vancouver's New Play Centre, and the Blythe Festival, to only put a few of his numerous work. And um, we also have Professor Sarah Grace. She is a UBC professor and UBC alum. Uh, She's also the um, optional resident uh, program MFA candidate think and in and, and stage play and in screenplay she is an award-winning playwright and her stage plays include uh sadly as i tie my shoes scribbles yellow on thursday and dream spire she has worked with ottawa's national art center yukon's nakai theater the sydney opera house and the edinburgh festival french she was also a screenwriter in residence at Uh, Norman Jewison's Canadian Film Center in Toronto, which is a very accomplished school. And she's also worked in uh, TV for uh, the BC film industry for Edgemont, which was a uh, CBC TV teen program. And she was also an essayist for a, a, a book called A Family by Any Other Name. And we also have Colleen Osborne. She is an MFA in Opt Res Creative Writing at UBC. She's also a writing mentor at UBC's uh, Booming Ground. And she's also a published and produced playwright. She's also a member of the Script Lab in Toronto. And her plays include How It Crumbles, Take It Easy, Botched, Here to Say, uh, Seen This One Before, and also one that's upcoming at the the Brave New Playwrights Festival, Tripping with Trump. She's also worked with um, the one festival company... um, um, excuse me, the one festival festival in London, the uh, Toronto Wrecking Ball, Ottawa Fringe Fest, Toronto Fringe Fest, and et cetera. So welcome to the show. You guys are such accomplished and wonderful, uh, I guess, uh, um, playwrights. So thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so sorry. I am a little starstruck at the moment, listeners. But I'm already tripping my words up. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And um, just to ask you guys, this is the 30th the 30th uh, year for brave new playwrights. Can you guys tell me how this festival actually started and how did you guys like actually have personal experiences in getting involved with this festival?
6: Well, I guess I should start with the, how it got started, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first arrived at UBC uh, in the creative writing department, there was um, there was no real um, uh, sort of festival outlet for stage play students, right? And uh, I had worked in Toronto for over a decade and had been involved with many different kinds of festivals, and I saw that the benefits of a festival situation as a learning experience and uh, so that's where the idea came from, actually. That, mm-hmm. uh, so in the uh, spring of 1987, we put together our first, uh, I think we were in the Grad Center, grad, grad center Auditorium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of course it was like a terrible theater space <laughs> because it's basically a ballroom, right? Actually it was the UBC, it was the Grad Center Ballroom. And so we sort of had to find a way to hang the lights and put on the shows. Um, and so that, that's essentially what we've been doing is, um, and it's gone through a number of kinds of evolutions where, um, you know, the, the creative writing students, whether they're grads or undergrads, write plays and we find directors, we find actors and we produce it for the public.
4: And, um, I, I think I may, I think I might be right, but you guys have produced about 400, 500 plays for stage reading and also on stage itself, too, and this is one of the longest-run new play festivals in Western Canada.
6: That's right. That's right.
4: So, how, how did you get? Um, in, how did you kind of get in? How did you kind of get into? Again, I'm tripping with my words. Um, with with Brave New Professor Gray. Uh,
7: my first brush with the festival mm-hmm. was uh, when I was here as a student in the early '90s. So, I was um, in the joint MFA program, of uh, creative writing and theater. So, I was here as a playwright, getting my master's, and. Uh, She's sort of a funny story, and this is where I feel a bit like a brave new fraud. Um, The year I was supposed to have my play in the festival, I had this opportunity. My um, full-length script, Scribbles, was picked up at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, which was an incredible opportunity. And it turns out they slotted me in for January, which I think was right when we were running that year. So I ended up having to say to Brian, sorry, I can't do my short brave new play because the whole part of the process is to have the students involved in the production. So it wouldn't have really been fair for me to, to not be involved in in that Mm -hmm. process. So I I went off to Ottawa and had a comparable process at the NAC, which was amazing. But I kind of missed my chance to have my Brave New Play stage. But the next year I came back, I still wanted to be involved, and I actually directed a friend's play, um, a play called Aquarium by uh, Stephanie Bolster, who was here in the program as a poet. And the funny story with that is uh, Stephanie went on, and I think it was a few years Mm -hmm. after that, she went on and won the Governor General's Award for poetry, for a poetry manuscript she Mm -hmm. developed while in the program. So it's sort of interesting to see Stephanie, like many uh, writers who've been through Brave New Playwrights, have gone on to do some amazing things um, afterwards.
4: And you're also a playwright within the festival, uh, Colleen. Yep. Yep, I am. (laughs) And um, your show is called uh, Tripping with Trump. And that is premiering tomorrow for program one. There are two different programs, listeners, for the brave new playwrights. And uh, can you tell us what made you um, write about Trump or was it just a happy accident that while you were developing the script, this kind of like political insurgence happened?
8: Uh, it was a happy accident because I started the play, um, the idea for it was probably about two, three years ago. Okay. And it's based on basically a person who went by Donald Trump in a small town Huron County and he was an older gentleman who would hang out with teenagers and get into some trouble, I guess.
4: Mm-hmm. So and in your play, I, I think you said a one, uh, it was a young woman, mm-hmm. and she had a relationship with this Trump person. Could you tell us more about it for the listeners who might be interested in coming to see it?
8: Um, I think it's it's kind of like a connection you have when how you see yourself when you're young, and then when you go back and how you see yourself again later. So by encountering Donald Trump years later, she starts to realize um, maybe they had more of a connection that was you know, h- harmless or not mm-hmm. not so disturbing as what it might have seemed like at the time. I don't know if that's a good enough answer. No, that's okay. <laughs> Without getting away too much. No
4: worries. No worries. No spoiler here. It's just really wonderful to have again this festival to showcase talent from UBC, and I know it's been thirty years of it. How has the vision and the process of Brave New uh, changed throughout the years, or um, has it always stayed constant?
6: Um, I guess, Ashley, I think one of the um, uh, I think one of the realizations I came to very quickly was that. It was always going to evolve, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of uh, like our first ten years. We were sort of like theater gypsies. We would move around, and we would we did a sh- we did the festival in uh, North Vancouver, a presentation mm-hmm. house. We did it at a, a wonderful little space called Vancouver Little Theater, which is right off of off of Main Street, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, uh, we did it mm-hmm. in the old Dorothy Somerset Studio. Eventually, at the end of that ten years, which is sort of like ceilings like here in the studio right we're quite low mm-hmm. uh, you know we did it sort of where um waterfront theater you know mm-hmm. uh and so it was sort of like um and so finally we uh ended up at the uh dorothy somerset studio on campus right uh which is, i guess about year 10 and sort of then we were on campus for quite a while but but i mean i guess it all depends And to answer your question is, like, Mm -hmm. I've had some wonderful collaborators like uh, John Cooper, who was teaching uh, theater directing here. Uh, I've had, um, I can't think of her name right now, she teaches at... um,
1: Kate
7: Weiss, I think you're thinking of. Thank you, thank you,
6: Sarah, for that save there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Kate Weiss, who's now a professor in the drama department at the University of Alberta. Uh, Kate was quite instrumental in Mm -hmm. sort of... In, in in us sort of forming the sort of uh, uh, arrangement between uh, or sort of marrying the directors, the directing class with the playwrights. So that went on for about a decade, right? Where it really worked well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because they were uh, the directing students were committed to the piece because it was part of their course, and you know my students were committed to the piece because it's part of their coursework, right? So. So, and you know, but now we're producing off campus, right? Mm-hmm. So this is our second year off campus at Studio 1398 on Gravel Island. So again, you know, we've, we've evolved, we've, we've moved off campus and I think it's brought, um, I think it was really exciting last year and I think it'll be really exciting this year that we're in the center of the city now where there's so much theater and activity on Gravel mm-hmm. Island, right?
4: That's great. And you guys are, um, even though the plays are written by BFA MFA students at UBC, it is with collaboration with local Vancouver directors and actors. How did you guys come to that kind of like that kind of idea to work with the larger uh, Vancouver um, community? Um, well, I guess we'd reached a place, I mean, just with
7: with the sort of ongoing uh, changes within the university and changes in the funding structure, um, the mm-hmm. collaboration with theatre was no longer possible. So, uh, you know, we, we sort of put our heads together and thought, okay, what, what's the next incarnation of the festival? And it seemed like mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, learning opportunity for our students to have a chance to work with actors and directors who are doing work out there. And in a way, it's a way to bring the work of our students out into the community and uh, and I, I think the, the relationships our playwrights forge, uh, w- working with those collaborators, you know, it's great training for the work they will do after graduation if they continue to work in the theater. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a great way to start making those connections now.
4: And that's actually going to lead into my follow-up question. Um, why do you think staging plays is crucial for the development of the stage play course? Uh,
6: well, I think, I think uh, because I think uh, playwrights need that reality of Actually, sort of witnessing their work on stage, I think unlike other genres like a uh, fiction writer or a poet, where it's it, it's on the page, mm-hmm. I think in this case where and I think because theater is uh, the art of collaboration, so I think what other theater artists bring to that work and inform that work, like um, like Sarah was mentioning actors and but also, uh, you know we have designers, we have a sound designer. So I mean, I think I think that makes them aware of it's not just uh, the playwright. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean that contributes to the piece. Ultimately, obviously, that's often the blueprint. But I mean, I think I think that's what, I, and it's a sort of it's a qualitative kind of learning process because it maybe, you know, sometimes students get in touch with me afterwards, you know, like a year later, and they say, Brian. That was amazing right Mm -hmm. i mean i just i didn't get what you were talking about but now i really get it right and so and so some people really go on and they like sarah was mentioning they they develop relationships and friendships they do fringe shows they do Mm -hmm. professional theater right and so i think it's sort of that and you know some people don't right and that's fair enough right it's not everybody's gonna you know go out and want to be a professional playwright but i mean i think it just gives them that opportunity
7: and I might add that it's a very different skill set that you draw upon as a playwright when you're in rehearsal, when you're mm-hmm. in collaboration with others. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to sit in front of your computer, you know, in, in your own quiet house, typing away and, and, you know, getting it on the page. But y- you sort of have to, to pull out some very different skills when you're you're in rehearsal. You have to develop a thick skin. You have to be open to feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that's the most exciting about the collaborative part of the process is you have all these these great minds, these great creative minds in the room with you who have this idea of what your play could be. And mm-hmm. if the process goes well, the final product on stage is even better than what you dreamed up in your imagination when it was just you and the page. It's sort of like the, the sum of the parts. You know, that the whole mm-hmm. is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think it's it's really great to start learning how to how to work that way early in your career rather than later. I think also because there's room sometimes, you know, when when you get a group of people together, depending on the dynamics, there's also room for things <laughs> to break down. And this is a good way to kind of learn the etiquette about working well that way. Um, because if you can play well with others, you know, chances are you're going to get picked up by other theaters who, you know, people will want to play with you and produce your work and involve you in that process in the future.
8: I can say, can I say one Yes, good? of course. Go ahead. Um, so I, I've been involved in other small, tiny festivals and... Um, The way that Brave New has been structured, I find really professional, and I really appreciated the way that uh, the meet and greet. Now I'm in Toronto, I'm based in Toronto, Mm -hmm. and they Skyped me in. They had handouts for everybody, they had like etiquette and everything like that, and kind of. Um, set deadlines for like changes. So, like I think, because um, I've done it before, but other people in the class, they should know like the experience of, you know, y- there's a certain point where you can't make changes to a script anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain points where you have to let your baby go and, and develop things. And so far, in my experience has been really good. Um, my director is Shelby Bushell. Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying the name right. Um, so we've had a couple, like a, a Skype chat, and we've emailed back and forth a few times. And w- one of the things that Sarah was saying is like what other people bring to the table. Unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the um, the sound tech person, but I had just bare bones of what I had for like a little kind of, drug sequence of music Mm -hmm. and she sent me like this audio file based on it and that this person put together and i love it i haven't seen any rehearsals i haven't seen anything but i've only heard that and i love it and i'm looking forward to seeing the show
4: was it a bit of a challenge for you because you were quite far away that you or was it still because of the skype calls much more easier to communicate um
8: i person, i think some people really like being in rehearsals um Mm -hmm. i'm not one of those people i like being kind of surprised in the end but i do like uh, you know there's, it's a nice it's a nice gesture for a director to check in when the writer is living um, if they don't understand something in the script mm-hmm. so you know um, just getting those emails being like what what does this line mean you know it's very easy to communicate back and forth um, yeah I, some people really I think it's really good to try um, rehearsals like sit in on them but if you've done it before a bunch of times I rather
4: not (laughs) I wanted to ask all of you did you have any favorite moments of brave new playwrights I know it's a very very much a loaded question since there's 30 years that we can dig back into its rich history (laughs) but any (laughs) moments that stick out to you in particular I'll go with favorites then I'll go with challenges
6: (laughs) (laughs) favorites favorites well, it's sort of like being a parent, right? I mean, how can you choose what's a favorite? Um,
4: then I'll ask for a favorite moment Okay, with
6: a uh, pet. yeah, um, a favorite moment. I guess it's just, um, I think um, just when fa- a favorite, I guess uh, one moment is when, uh, when you sort of, s- have you seen the shows uh, like one night and then you, come back and see an audience and they they don't know what's coming sort of and that kind of surprise I guess one of my favorite moments is one of our producers Ramon he was uh, yeah this is probably a good example yeah go ahead and it was about this young couple and they have they're taking care of uh his like young nephew who's about four or five in the bathroom and he's having a bath right and so we never see him so Ramon played the boy offstage, right? His mm-hmm. voice, right? You Because
7: know. they needed an offstage voice, and right. I guess he got brought on sort of late in the process right. as <laughs> exactly. he was there. So it was super random. And so
6: one of the delightful moments is when he comes out, he c- would come out for the curtain call, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody is totally convinced. Mm-hmm. It's a young boy, right? <laughs> and so I guess it's that, it's those kind of favorite, you know, are some of my favorite moments.
7: And actually to add to that, um, he was a young boy taking a bath unsupervised. That was part of That's the right. content of the play. Right. And sort of for a little added kind of joke at the curtain call, he came out wearing water wings. Yeah. You know, those inflatable water wings. <laughs> awesome. And mm-hmm. uh, a big chunk of the audience, there was also the recognition yeah. producer, water wings. Right, so, right.
6: Yeah. yeah. No, no. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Thank goodness. Sarah's got a better memory than me (laughs) about the waterways. That's a good touch.
7: I remember a blooper from the 94 festival when I was directing that I I will mention here because it was actually an instructive moment for me as a playwright. I had a number of friends um, working as crew, as uh, stage manager and ASMs. I think Tanya Campbell was the uh, sort of running the show. And uh, we had Stephanie Bolster and Teresa Timpson, both as SMs. And I think this was a year we were in the Dorothy Somerset with the low ceilings, and we had a, a... I think we had too many props back there we tried to keep oh, it minimal no. too many props uh-huh. and there was a one of the last shows of the night um and it had a, a big door that had to be hauled on stage and opened with the pizza guy banging on the door and I think late in the run one night in the final reset they forgot to move the door on stage the lights went up and it wasn't there and to this day Stephanie uh-huh. and Teresa talk about that feeling of panic when they uh-huh. realized the door wasn't there but uh-huh. the show went on as it does the pizza guy came and someone just knocked on a table backstage and actually, the, the opening of the play was way better without the door there. When they, You know, it just we didn't need that visual just when it was the yeah. actors in space. And I thought, okay, right. sometimes less is more. And in right. this case, they should have lost the door from the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. I it, remember
6: that door now that you mention it. <laughs> the door.
7: It still gives those women nightmares, you know, <laughs> right. some 20-some yeah, years funny. later. So, Oh,
4: boy. Yeah. I hope I don't get any nightmares. All right. Um, then what about now let's... Let's kind of turn it on the flip side. Were there any challenges in providing this festival year after year for students to be able to produce their plays on stage?
6: Um, I guess I guess the biggest challenge was um, to sort of maintain the funding um, for it. Uh, I mean, and I think that sort of that sort of uh, creative writing has always been very supportive of this uh, program I think but I think because. Uh, for instance, like one year um, when we were over in the... T- uh, there's another... You know, we were in the Telus Theatre for mm-hmm. a while. Um, and we sort of were producing a pocket musical. And for... We had to get a, a piano over there. And then we had to pay for the tuning. So which cost like $100, which doesn't seem like a lot. But mm-hmm. just to pay for that, you know, that was sort of a big thing on the budget. So yeah. I think I think the biggest challenge was sort of to try to support shows... And you know, you and it's 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 wonderful to have like something like a pocket musical, you know, where uh, or to allow people the freedom to do things. But the problem was, you know, we never had enough uh, funding to sort of mm-hmm. uh, support some some projects, right? A, as well as we could have, I guess. Uh, without going to, into specifics, I don't think that would be the biggest challenge, right?
4: Well, yes. Unfortunately, theater is one of those art forms that. Require a little bit of love from uh, funding, but once it gets put on, it's amazing and it's stunning and wows everybody. I know for sure that for um, students who are interested in Brave New, they have very good prices for students. I believe it's $15 at the door, and um, I would definitely recommend for people to go see it. There's a lot of different things. We have two programs. I just had a question. Why do you guys have two programs? Uh,
6: well, what what happened, Ashley is... Mm-hmm. Uh, This is sort of, I can give you a bit of history, too. We used to, that's why we got, we have so many plays that we produce because I think when Sarah was a student, right, there was no adjudication process, right? So we, uh, all the students, whatever, you know, plays they wrote, we produced them. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we'd have 24 plays, right? So it became, you know, theater of, 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 you know, survival, right? So it's <laughs> so like I would like to put it. So we finally found the mo- the best model was to do 12 plays and we would break them up into six a night. So, yes, mm-hmm. you're right. If you go to see Program A on Thursday night or Program B, you're going to see six amazing short plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are one-person plays. Some of them are, you know, with multi-faceted. But that seems to be the best in terms of the staff Mm -hmm. and also the audience, right? So they can, you know, and you have an intermission between the three plays, uh, between Mm -hmm. you see three plays and then have an intermission. So it seems to be, you know, so it's actually around two hours.
4: So it's definitely kind of a variety of different plays coming from different people. And one thing I really liked about Brave New Playwrights is you guys do a lot of diversity, especially in subject matter and your casting and um, and also in um, how the different theater forms are there. I won't spill too much, but I know for sure you guys have also been dabbling in the experimental stuff, which I am totally a fan of. I had one question for you, um, Colleen. Um, I know that um, tomorrow, is it your first time seeing your play live? Yes. Yes, it is. um, How do you feel about that?
8: I'm really excited to see it. Um, I I don't know if knew this it was also put on um i I got selected the same day Mm -hmm. actually and i I asked permission like i I applied to two different festivals brave new and Mm -hmm. the one festival in london and i got to i decided i'd rather come here to see this than go to london england because it's colder and damper and (laughs) and i get to see these guys so um anyway i i got to see a recording of um, a recording of the play version in London and I'm really excited to see the difference. I think it's really interesting like it's uh, two totally different directors mm-hmm. two totally different actors putting it on. Um, I know I'm not going to be disappointed I because I was kind of disappointed with the fact that there was absolutely no lighting design in the London one mm-hmm. so it, it kind of came off as schizophrenic and not my play but but I know that there's lighting in this one, and mm-hmm. I, I've heard good things, feedback from the director that it's going really well. So I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm just really thrilled to meet her, see the show, and see what the other shows as well. I'm looking forward to seeing my classmates' shows as well.
4: And what was your experience like working um, with the MFA program here at UBC while located in Toronto?
8: Um Brian and the classmates um, have been really nice to me because I'm a robot, and the robot sometimes (laughs) fails. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the robot's a bit of a diva. What do you
4: mean by the robot for our listeners who may not be aware?
8: um, It's kind of like Skype, except it's cool in that if I toggle to the left, I can turn and look to the people to the left, and I can look to the people to the right. and,
4: And it's kind of interactive that way. So there's an actual camera that yeah. pans around depending on what you press on your keyboard. Exactly.
7: It's a bit like if you've seen The Good Wife, they uh, have a <laughs> camera like this on a Segway, so it's it's very much like the, the department has one of those. So that's think, imagine a Segway in class and Colleen on the on mm-hmm. the Segway.
6: Right. Yeah. Like, it's like an iPad, the size of an iPad, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. to give you a sense of that, right? Yeah, and I think that's the frustrating thing, right, Colleen, is that this this technology is not supporting it because the students certainly have uh they I mean they sort of it's they've welcomed Colleen and mm-hmm. Colleen's always got, you know, tons of insight in terms of their plays too. So I mean I think it's I think it's been a really amazing experiment that really has worked well for all of us, right? I mean mm-hmm. I think it was uh And I think that's been the challenge, though, sometimes that we cannot get Colleen in to the classroom, right? So, and I know that's been frustrating for her, too.
4: But it's so great that you are here and you get to see your show for the first time tomorrow. And I know that not only do you guys do the produced plays for the, the ones with actors, but you guys also do readings. Can you tell us more about that, the stage readings?
7: I think because we have started doing a curated festival, juried festival, just to keep the numbers in check so it's not a marathon, we have all the the other um, students who have submitted plays, and we want to honor those works as well Mm -hmm. and give those students also a similar taste of the, I guess, the dramaturgical experience um, or, or just sort of working to get your play on its feet. So um, while the the readings are not full productions, uh, these students work with a a dramaturge Mm -hmm. slash director. Uh, They get a chance to rewrite their scripts. And we have a day when uh, we have a a company of actors uh, read the various scripts. So it's the same actors sort of cast in different roles for people's works, but uh, the audience comes and has an opportunity to to hear those uh, pieces read. And by stage reading, uh, we mean, we don't mean they just sort of sit in chairs and read. We have music stands on the stage. The actors Mm -hmm. stand up and read. And it actually uh, brings the play to life in, in a really interesting way. It's sort of halfway between sort of a table read and a production, if you can imagine mm-hmm.
4: that. Would you also say that it can also provide kind of a, um, a auditory effect that is not only just the play right, reading their own work, but because you have the different voices, it brings more life?
7: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's a really great way to see what's working and not working in your script. You, you get a real sense of it being on its feet, um, mm-hmm. and, but there is that auditory quality for sure. And in some ways, it's like a radio drama, except because the, the actor's actually there mm-hmm. reading. They, they'll have gestures, facial expressions. Um, it's very easy for the audience, sort of taking in the reading, to imagine what that play would look like staged. And actually, even just the process of getting it on its feet, if something's not working staging-wise, mm-hmm. you can already begin, begin to tell and adjust that. So it's hugely helpful. And in fact, most new plays in this country will go through a stage reading process first before mm-hmm. going into production. We do a lot of new play development. Um, so it, it's another uh, amazing educational experience for the playwrights involved in that stream of the festival.
6: And the good thing is we... Mm-hmm. And so we did it at Playwrights Theatre Centre in Chinatown, right? Uh, <laughs> this is the second year in a row we did that, Did it there. We held it there on a Saturday. and And I think it also introduces the playwrights to... This amazing developmental theater playwrights theater center, right? So, mm-hmm. and in terms of the space, and it's open to the public, so uh, people and and some public uh, folks do come. So mm-hmm. it was it's always it's always good.
4: And for let's say anyone who's interested in going into the creative writing program and they're interested in taking uh, stage writing and kind of uh, becoming a playwright, do you guys have any advice for them?
6: <laughs> some advice, yeah, some uh, advice. I guess. Uh, Go to see shows. Uh, try to put put on uh, shows with your friends. Um, I think I think it's uh, read plays. Um, I think uh, do you know do your homework, right? <laughs> I mean, I I know it sounds like the the classic sort of stereotypes, but I mm-hmm. think I think uh, people can learn a lot by. I mean, there's lots of material now on the internet too, in terms of YouTube's uh, performances by of classic plays. I mean, I think any way you can. Uh, sort of educate yourself um, and sort of open up that world of because going to see plays is very expensive, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, just because ticket prices are usually so, I'm, but I mean, you can probably find a way to usher, uh, you know, or volunteer so you could actually get, uh, you know, or if they have rush seats. Uh, so I think it's all these things that will help you to learn about the world of playwriting. You know, mm-hmm. when I went to U- University of Victoria and mm-hmm. the creative writing pro- Creative Writing department there, there was no uh, festival of plays, right? So it was essentially m- me and a, a group of theater friends, right? And we would put on plays. That's how we did our own little, f- you know, I mean, but it was sort of a haphazard, <laughs> well, let's do a show, right? <laughs> yes. Next, you know, next weekend. But I mean, you know, it was kind of really crazy, right? But But I think that was sort of, so th- I think that was one another reason why I, I, I knew that we should do a festival here, right? So, so there was a framework.
4: Mm-hmm. But you, do you have any advice for um, young aspiring playwrights? I think Brian hit on a lot of key
7: points. I mean, certainly uh, start writing. There's no reason to wait to take a class. Um, I mean, certainly a class can help you uh, refine your craft, but if you have a play and you just start getting it down, and as Brian said, if you read plays and see plays, well, reading plays on the page gives you a good idea of, of the, the sort of the format on the page. Mm-hmm um yeah just start writing them and as Brian said if you have friends can get them on your feet great um I did my undergrad in a theater program I, w- I went to Queens and uh, we mm-hmm. we did a lot of shoestring theater either in that program and we all, because it was a small town we had the opportunity to rent theater spaces downtown and just put on a show and so much can be learned by if you know again yeah if your script is the one that goes from page to stage but just yeah just start doing it and I, I mean I think if you come into the creative writing program with a portfolio already that that's also you know a, a great way to to get into the sort of specialized BFA, MFA streams.
8: Mm-hmm. I, I can add something. Yes go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Um, so I would say definitely yeah definitely go see plays but I, I kind of um and I read plays but when somebody advised me very early on to read plays that's like saying read books like it's just like that you don't <laughs> so you don't there's just so much out there yes. so I would definitely recommend uh, here the anthology brave new playwrights i do too that's a great start really like, great book and it's diverse so that kind of gives you a sense of maybe what interests you as well mm-hmm. like what oh i like this genre and things you can borrow uh, you can't see me doing air quotes but borrow yep. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and then when you start seeing plays you're like i like this like i had people say oh you, you write like edward Albee or like or, and so i started reading those things mm-hmm. or his, his plays and so on so yeah, I would say start seeing plays, get that anthology, and then start talking with other people involved in theater, and they'll, they'll recommend things that are, you know, your style.
4: Well, thank yeah. you so much for all of your insights about Brave New and about playwriting. And as all have said, if you are interested in learning more about your uh, local uh, theater, do check out Brave New Playwrights. It is uh, starting tomorrow, March 17th and it goes until the 20th. It does have alternating programs, so we recommend that you check out both for maximum effect. It is located at Studio 1398 on Granville Island, and it is uh, at 7.30 p.m. Thank you so much for being on our show, Professor Wade, Professor Graves, and Colleen. Thank you so much. We're going to go to a uh, few short messages, and we'll be back with more Arts Report stuff. Uh, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory in Vancouver. This is The Arts Report with your host, Ashley Park. Thank you.
5: This is my life. I I wake up in the morning, I eat, I sleep, I shit. Breakfast with the Browns. Whatever it is, but I never
2: shut it off for five minutes. I can't wait to impress my friend with my astounding knowledge of
5: cool.
0: Join your favorite brownsters and tune in and listen to the best selection of down tempo electro pop launch core. Strictly
8: squaresville.
2: Remember. Subtle. Basic.
0: Brown. Breakfast with the Browns on CITR 101.9 FM every Monday morning from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m.
5: The older I get, the more life starts to make sense and the less I care.
0: Now we're riding the rainbow across clouds and we're making it like young. A- now we're riding the rainbow to Clansville. And we're making it like you. Now we're riding the Rainbow to Clansville.
6: You know, you can give a hundred examples of what it isn't, but you man, you're gonna have a hell of a time saying what it is.
4: All right, and welcome back to the Arthur Report, just to let you guys know. Uh, This is the end of our show. It was a very special show that went a little bit longer than uh, expected, but with really great content. Uh, Next up is sharing science with Damien and Tanya, and I'm going to just go to them after this message. Thanks, guys. See you next week on Wednesday.